This is the Education Gadfly Show. And everybody's a winner in Amber and Mike's America. (laughs) (laughs) What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Ron Rice. Ron, (laughs) welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Yeah. Also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Ron, for those of you that don't know, Ron is the Senior Director of Government Relations at the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. And we are super excited to have you on the show, though I wish it were for a better reason, because what we're going to talk about today is that the charter movement is playing defense, thanks to our friends in the House of Representatives. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Ron. So let's get some background here. We are in the middle of the appropriations process here in Washington, D.C. for the next fiscal year that starts in October. And the House Democrats, they they came out with their draft appropriations bill that has now since become their actually uh, enacted appropriations bill, right, for a bunch of agencies, including the Department of Education. And they were not so kind to charter schools. What happened? Well, two major things occurred. Uh, One was the budget outlay for the charter schools program, which is the only federally funding for the creation of new charter schools and the expansion and replication of successful charter schools already in existence, was cut by $40 million in the budget that was H.R. 4502, uh, which passed last Thursday in the House on a 219 to 208 vote. And that was against the Biden administration's proposed budget, which kept us at our current number, which is at 440 million. The House bill cuts us at 40 million. So it goes against the President Biden's uh, proposal uh, that he submitted. Let's talk about that one first. So, okay, so a budget cut. Now, let's keep it in mind. This is at a time when the Democrats are in favor of spending a lot more money on almost everything. Right. That's I correct. mean, this budget itself has big increases for the regular education programs and everything else. Right. They're talking about this three point five trillion dollar social infrastructure bill. I mean, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's hard to find areas that they want to cut. Right. <laughs> they, right. Here it is with charter schools, a 40 million dollar cut, which is it's what I mean, it's something like almost 10 percent. I mean, this is this is a, a pretty sizable one. Is it right, Ron? This is the second time that the House Democrats have made a proposal like this. It's the third time. Yeah. OK. So basically, when the Democrats get control of the House, they propose these kinds of cuts. And it does appear that they're, they're listening to folks like the Network for Public Education, our uh, former founder and trustee, Diane Ravage, mm-hmm. uh, and Carol Burris and others who, who have been arguing that somehow this money isn't needed or that it hasn't been well spent or there's all these scandals. We can talk about that in a bit. But but on the whole, that is bunk, right? I mean, there yeah. is this is money that goes to start new charter schools. And we know from a ton of research, including some here at Fordham, that especially the urban charter schools are overwhelmingly effective and that this money has been been really important to that. But then what's the second part of the story? The second part of the story is that there's a section of language that is groundbreaking in its bad positioning for charter schools. Section 314 actually forbids contracting of quote-unquote for-profit charter schools with private vendors, uh, and they could lose and forego 
federal funding, not just from the charter schools program, but other federal sources such as IDEA, Title I, even COVID relief funding. Mm-hmm. That is something that was thrown in. Uh, it's sloppily written. Uh, we understand what the intent may be, but the unintended consequences are that charter schools, not just what they term as for-profits, which we can talk about later, it doesn't even really exist as a thing, But charter schools all over, because of the language and how it's written, are in jeopardy of losing all of their federal funding. And so that affects every mom and pop charter school, it affects CMOs, it affects EMOs, it affects everyone. And I don't think the majority in the House, um, because we have a lot of, uh, this is a bipartisan thing that supports charter schools, that I don't think the majority in the Democrat, our friends, even recognize how detrimental this language actually is to charter schools in general. That's right. And, and the chair of the House Appropriations Subcommittee in charge of this, right, she defended, oh, these, these charter people are lying about this language or they're saying that it's going to, you know, but you look at the language and it's, it is sloppy. It talks about activities that are contracted out to for-profit companies. And, you know, if you were being lawyerly, you could interpret almost anything as an activity, right? Even if their intention was to really go after the the charters that are managed by for-profit companies, meaning the for-profit companies tend to hire the staff, they run almost everything, right? And again, like you say, not just the charter school program, the startup funds, but everything, which by the way, can you even do that? I mean, these are public schools. You can't cut off their IDEA funding, for example, can you? Right. But hugely problematic. And yet, it's still in there, right? I mean, this yes. language was included in a bill that now has passed the House of Representatives. Yes. And you said it right. It doesn't even define what a charter school is. You know, under ESSA, charter school is not defined as a separate entity, but they're including definitions of public schools and local education agencies, LEA. So when the language you know, transgresses on these definitions, as well as state law, that's going to be a problem. You know, these schools, ideally, could be talking about equal protection, right? In terms of like how our public schools are treated as opposed to other public schools. All right. And it's fair to say this went further than what the Biden administration had called for, right? I mean, candidate Biden said that he wanted to what, clamp down on for-profit charter schools or some language like this, but yeah. All right. So now the action moves to the Senate. Are we hopeful that friends of charter schools are going to fix this? Uh, we are hopeful. We obviously want folks uh, in charter schools, parents, school leaders, advocates, the whole nine community leaders and students to reach out to their members of Congress, particularly in the Senate, uh, to let them know that this language exists and what the ramifications actually are. The Senate has not set up a time frame yet of for when they are going to start considering their budget and their appropriations process. Obviously, they're dealing with infrastructure and a lot of other sort of big ticket items. Uh, so that may happen in the fall, but the runway is they will probably, you know, have until October, obviously, to do a continuing resolution, but they have to the end of the year, December. And this could last that long in terms of actually getting it together. But we're asking folks to reach out to the Senate. We don't think this will live in the Senate. We have some assurances from supporters, both on both sides of the aisle, looking at this language that it probably will not stand. The good news is that the Senate starts from scratch, right? They don't take the House budget and do something with it. They start with their own priorities. They look at their own numbers. The Senate and the House typically don't even have the same number, right, that they use in the budget consideration. So we're very hopeful in the Senate. We're just sad that it got to this point, that the House would do something like this. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but we, we have a lot of faith in our Senate friends on both sides of the aisle. Right. And again, both to fix the language and, and hopefully to restore the cuts. 
Now, last question, and here's where I want to get David in on, on this, because David's not a big fan of, the, of, of some of these for-profit companies. I think it's fair to say that are involved in charter school operations. What if they simply say, okay, well, we'll fix the language so that we make it clear that we really are just talking about charter schools run by the for-profit operators? I mean, is the charter movement going to say, all right, that's okay with us. We're fine if uh, we'll, we'll let those schools go under as long as the rest of us are protected. Is that the goal here? So I hate fighting on people's terms and, and on their ground, right? So I, I don't even like using the term for-profit charters. Does the term in and of itself, if you look at it, what it actually means, what our opponents mean by it does not exist, right? These are education management organizations that charge a management fee for their services to a charter school for specific services. In that respect, they're not any different than what traditional district schools do every single day and twice on Sundays, right? In terms of uh, services that they use for accounting and, and other types of things, psychological services that they do district-wide and in particular schools. And so I don't even like using that term. If we're going to forbid it, then we should forbid it for all public schools. Now, that wouldn't work because that would make no sense. And in like likes, it doesn't make sense for charter schools in that respect either. So I don't know if reforming language actually gets us to where we need to get to. What we need to be doing is, is empowering states and authorizers in those states to go after bad actors. If we want to do those kind of things, the National Alliance and other groups within the sector are more than willing to give good information and best practices to the president and to Congress if we're really trying to solve the problem. I don't think any of us want yeah. bad actors to go unpunished. We want them punished and drummed out. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and look, I think it's fair to say, I, I think the evidence is that the real bad actors, to the extent that they've happened out there in the charter sector, have tended to be some of these online, big online charter schools, uh, some of which have been run by these for-profit companies. And you, you know, the National Alliance. You call them out. NAXA and lots of other folks in the charter sector have been very willing to say, we have got to shut down uh, those schools if they're not providing a good education. We had a success in Ohio where the 10,000 student mm -hmm. econ finally got shut down after a state audit. So, you know, there is where there is some agreement. David, what's well, the argument for the left? Invite me to the says, conversation, Mike. <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, I'll say I this. Like I've already you know, spoken though, right? Well, Democrats for education reform, they're out there kind of more or less saying, hey, you know, we, we have no love for, for pro these for-profit operators. They're happy to throw them under the bus, as far as I know. You might consider yourself a Democrat for education reform. Is, is that where you're at, too? <laughs> yeah, I'm on an extended fellowship or, or internship or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm curious to get both of your perspective just on even whether this is theoretically possible. Is this something that you can even do in this sort of budget bill? Is it inevitably going to run foul of other laws. I don't know. You're right. I do. I do have concerns about the long term role that, that for profits play in the sector, not because I think, you know, they're run by evil um, mustache twisting folks, but just because we are creating new interest groups, um, even as we're destroying old ones. Yeah, I guess I'm just more curious, right, whether there's ever going to be any federal role in this debate or whether this is all just theater. My position, and I think the position of the National Alliance is that it, it's theater. Implementation of this prohibition really will require actions by almost every federal agency and likely affect hundreds of individual programs, like each with its own sort of specific issues to be resolved. And, you know, agricultural department would have to determine whether children attending for-profit charter schools can still benefit from school nutrition programs. And the EPA would have to decide if it needs to take action to determine, if, you know, it can no longer fund protection of the health and safety of, of children in those schools. And I... I don't think anyone has an appetite to even go down there. And the other piece is this, and I'll add this as something that I, don't, I think is an unintended consequence. Small businesses that contract with charter schools. I think when people think about the quote unquote for profits, they think of some kind of oligarchy, some kind of huge big businesses that are making millions of dollars off our poor babies. 
Reality is that most charter schools, when they do make uh, contracts, contract with small businesses in their local areas. These are small businesses that can't compete for a district contract. They don't have the capacity or the, or the size. And so these are mom and pop. They are MBEs, WBEs, right? And so we're talking about trying to get our economy on track and trying to support small businesses. What this actually does is hurt small businesses and those run by people of color, which took the service schools that educate kids of color. So in that way, that's an unintended consequence that this is not even thought of. You know, in practice, these schools do exist. <laughs> and the federal government is not primary funder. So I'm not a big fan of, of sort of starving schools that are serving low-income kids to death, right? Even if I have concerns, that's not really my preferred way to go about this. I'm probably going to have to think more about what my preferred way of, of going about whatever this is. I'll give you some that ideas. Is, yeah, I mean, look, David, in Ohio, where there were concerns that some of these operators were, were bad actors, you know, we made progress on getting some things passed. More transparency around the contracts, around the relationships, more transparency to make sure that the charter boards really are independent. And that, you know, meaning that if one of these operators is not doing a good job, they can get fired you know, and, and more accountability for the authorizers overseeing all of this. All of that has led to some, you know, good outcomes, at least in Ohio. And look, the, the federal government in its charter school program, you know, for, for 20 or 25 years has certainly played around with different priorities for, right. you know, competitive grant program going mostly to states. And so they, you know, you can say you get a better chance of winning the money if you do X, Y, and Z, you know, and, and many of those X, Y's and Z's have been over the years, things that we've learned are good charter practice. So you could certainly make it less likely that Michigan gets the money if Michigan is going to mostly spend the money on schools managed by for-profit operators, you know, or you could go as far as saying you can't get the money if you're going to give some of this money, you know, to da 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 but that's just the startup money. And that, you know, but at least that's narrowly tailored. And again, you can make the case that, look, these businesses, because they are for profit, they have access to capital markets. They don't need uh, the same kind of startup money, may maybe, that uh, these other nonprofits and, and, you know, mom and pops do. And so that would be a place to start. But instead, they're going for this crazy, what? I mean, that, that's like a targeted approach. This is the sledgehammer approach. Exactly. Yeah, those were some interesting travel wounds, Mike. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, again, if this was, I mean, I think to, to the, what Ron said, like Ron's right, that it's political theater, because if it was meant to be about policy, then it could have been done in some thoughtful, targeted, strategic ways. And the fact that they went this other way just tells you that, no, this is just about virtue signaling. This is just about, and I assume that some of the people that voted for it, you know, are, are hoping that, hey, the Senate's going to fix this. And so, you know, we, we get to show that the, the unions were with them on this and some folks on the left were with you on this, but it doesn't actually come to pass. And, and, so and the one thing I'll add, Michael, is, again, we remain at the ready to work with the administration, members of Congress. We're serious about regulatory reform and some of this. You know, CSP needs to be revisited in terms of regulatory changes. We're all for that. Like, we have answers. We have things that we think will make the sector better. We've always been sort of the people who have the high bar for our movement and our sector. We're very proud of that. And so just talk to us, reach out to us. But to do this sort of behind the scenes in the middle of the night, such a heavy handed sort of meat cleaver when a scalpel is needed, eh, it's a bit disingenuous. All right. Well, that's well said, Ron. We will leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. Again, Ron Rice, the Senior Director of Government Relations at the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Hope listeners do uh, keep paying attention. And, and like Ron said, contacting your senator and letting them know your views on this would be very helpful. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute.
Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You've been enjoying the Olympics? I have. You know, of course, I watched Simone Biles get her bronze medal on the beam last night, which was exciting. Yeah, it was exciting. That, that was really touching. I tell you, I feel like there's several moments a night when my wife and I are both in tears <laughs> because, you know, there's just, it's just amazing watching these athletes. And of course, the NBC does a nice job, you know, playing up the emotional content. Right. All, the, all, in their hands, Mike. all the stories, yes. Oh, I am completely the target audience for this. I have forever, the Olympics, I mean, the theme song, the flag waving, I mean, this, <laughs> yes, I love it. So, words, please. Yeah, and the track. <laughs> field has been amazing too although i don't know it's something about the track is springier than usual and maybe that's why we're getting oh, these uh, records yeah. it does seem like the hurdlers are doing very well doesn't it <laughs> i guess it's like a trampoline that would make sense and then okay one last thing the the moment when the the two high jumpers realized that they could share the gold medal and without hesitation they're like yes 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 oh so nice i miss that but i've had many tearjerker moments watching it as well of course the swimming was was fantastic it's a good time especially in a global pandemic to be able to enjoy the olympics yeah and everybody's a winner in amber and mike's america <laughs> <laughs> No, and look, and getting to watch the families back home, you know, usually they'd be in the stands and, you know, which of course you would prefer, but for the viewer, getting to see them celebrating back home is actually pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I do enjoy that. All right, Amber, what do you have for us on the research front? We have a new NBER study out by James Heckman and Colleen Laughlin that examines how participating in sports, Mike, you're going to like this one, at the high school varsity level and in varsity intercollegiate athletics at the college level impact a variety of outcomes including high school graduation, college attendance, obtaining a bachelor's degree, and early career wages in one's mid-20s. I do like my sports, and this is such a, so timely, such a perfect It is timely, and apparently there's, you know, a lot of hullabaloo about, you know, maybe we're taking advantage of athletes uh, at the college level in particular, and, you know, they're not getting paid, and oh boy, we can get into that later, but that's part of what sort of motivated the study. Analysts use panel data for two different cohorts that follow students from high school through college and into early adulthood, specifically the NELS 88 and ELS 2002 data sets, each representative samples that are analyzed separately in the report, but most often find similar patterns. The NELS track students as they leave junior high, then as sophomores, then as seniors, then in college, then into early career. And then the L's is similar, except it starts in uh, when the kids are sophomores. Both ask students a boatload of questions pertaining to education and income, SES, including parental income and education, personal aspirations, involvement in extracurriculars, and much more. The battery also includes measures of cognitive and non-cognitive test of ability. And then just a little more context, of course, measuring the benefits of participating in intercollegiate sports depends on students graduating from high school and earning good grades and scores to be admitted to college. And college enrollment itself provides ample life benefits, as we all know. So they're attempting to isolate the sports benefit on social mobility beyond these other factors and specifically for disadvantaged kids. They hypothesize that the idea of playing college sports might incentivize high school kids to play well during high school, earn better grades, and so on. Their analysis controls, again, I just mentioned this, for a slew of individual cognitive and non-cognitive variables, including achievement test and test of general effort, test of persistence, 
as well as a slew of SES variables and family background variables, including race, income, and education. There are a lot of these <laughs> that may affect the outcome such that they're comparing students who participate in intercollegiate athletics relative to others in their same cohort who do not participate. All right, maybe you got all that. Key findings, participation in athletics increases the probability of graduating from high school. All else equal, on average, high school athletes are significantly more likely to graduate from high school than comparable non-athletes, and those who participate in football or basketball are even more likely to graduate than comparable non-athletes. Among high school graduates, all else equal, on average, those who participate in high school athletics are significantly more likely to attend a post-secondary institution. In particular, male athletes are 4.3 percentage points more likely to attend than comparable males who did not participate in sports. Female athletes, 5.8 percentage points more likely to attend college than comparable females who did not participate in sports. Now we're going to move on to intercollegiate varsity athletes as likely or more likely to earn at least a bachelor's degree relative to comparable non-athletes. For example, among male college students, all else equal, those who participate in intercollegiate athletics are on average 6.9 percentage points more likely to earn at least a bachelor's degree. Among female college students, all else equal, on average, those who participate in intercollegiate athletics are 10.9 percentage points more likely to earn at least a bachelor's. Now we're moving on to wages, all else equal. On average, males who were college athletes earn wages in their mid-20s approximately 12% higher than those of other comparable males. And females who were college athletes earn wages in their mid-20s approximately 18% higher than those of other comparable females. Overall, the impacts are even more positive for disadvantaged and minority students. For instance, among black females, all else equal, on average, those who participate in high school athletics are 6.7 percentage points more likely to graduate from high school than comparable non-athletes. And finally, black male athletes, all else equal, 17.2 percentage points more likely to attend college. Similar results for students falling below the poverty line. So this was just lots of positive news for extracurricular sports participation. Yeah. Now, the, the key term that you get coming back to is all else equal. equal. <laughs> <laughs> but we still have the selection bias problem, right? We, mm -hmm, we just sure. don't know if there's some unobserved variables, right, that could explain this. You know, is it actually participating in sports or it is something about the kids who go out for sports uh, or make the team uh, right, that makes right. them different in ways that we can't observe, sure. even if you know anything else, right? I mean, yeah, isn't yeah. that pretty likely? I mean, you, you can't measure it all, Mike, but if you, these, these two data sets, if you're going to have some variables to control for, these are the ones that, that are going to have the most. Sure. No, I, I get it. I know I'm not blaming the researchers. I'm just especially, saying that, you know. Yeah, sure. But especially on the non-cognitive front, I was amazed yeah. that they had measures on persistence yeah. and uh, effort. Right. You know? It's like, right. wow. No, 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 definitely. It's, it's impressive. But, you know, things like confidence or being good looking. <laughs> is associated with athleticism. I'm not really kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, that's and that could lead to higher wages. No, that that's right. That, that's right. Treatment from Absolutely. teachers. But let's assume that the un unobserved things are are fairly minor, and that that playing sports really has all these positive benefits. I mean, I think it's extremely powerful. It, it is related to this debate about you know whether we should be paying college athletes and the argument that they are being taken advantage of and. You know, the NCAA has always said, well, that they're getting a free college education and look at all the benefits of that. Well, it, there's some truth to that. There is, there are benefits mm -hmm. uh, to that. 
at the high school level, look, the, the next time Amanda Ripley or somebody else uh, says that American high schools are too focused on sports, you need to remind <laughs> them that these sports can do a lot of good, especially for boys, especially for boys of color, especially football. And so, hey, remember that when I allow my son to play tackle football in high school. Uh, and basketball, too. <laughs> and basketball, yes. You know, if we sort of assume there's some effect buried in there somewhere, it's interesting, right, to, to sort of think about what the mechanisms could be, right? I mean, it could be something as simple as just keeping kids out of trouble after school, right, yeah. through practice. You know, I do wonder if athletes are treated differently by teachers, just yep. human nature. <laughs> you oh, know, Amber's nodding her head. I'm yeah. nodding my head, yes. Yeah, well, you've got I, mean, stories I don't really it. wonder. I think they are. Yeah, well, <laughs> right, in ways that are both positive and negative. I mean, negative in that uh, you know, do some of these kids graduate high school because even though maybe they didn't meet the standards and, and there's that question. But look, I think it's also relationships. I mean, these kids have deep relationships with coaches yeah. who know them and care about them and are cheering them on and are holding them accountable and are reminding them that they can't play if they don't pass their courses and mm-hmm. on and on and on, helping them think about the next step, helping them, you know, get their tapes seen by college coaches. I mean, all of that, you know, you just think about the worst situation is for those kids in big high schools who are invisible. And those are the kids that are not participating in, in any sports or other extracurriculars, you know, and, and the best high schools have figured out a way to make those kids not invisible also. But look, to me, I, I suspect it's a largely a power of the, the story of relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I buy that whole mentoring piece and the whole, you know, just having someone else in your corner, all of that and the networking relationships. I, I think that's huge. All right. Well, hey, well-timed, Amber, and uh, really interesting. And I love to see, I, I feel like we keep seeing more and better use of some of those big federal data collections. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, let, let's keep that going. That's awesome. We'll do it. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.